Section 29 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 1. Book the Third. Chapter 1. Chesso. The storm was no less severe on land than on sea. The same wild enfranchisement of the elements had taken place around the abandoned child. The weak and innocent became their sport in the expenditure of the unreasoning rage of their blind forces. Shadows discern not, and things inanimate have not the clemency they are supposed to possess. On the land there was but little wind. There was an inexplicable dumbness in the cold. There was no hail. The thickness of the falling snow was fearful. Hailstones strike, harass, bruise, stun, crush. Snowflakes do worse, soft and inexorable. The snowflake does its work in silence. Touch it, and it melts. It is pure, even as the hypocrite is candid. It is by white particles slowly heaped upon each other that the flake becomes an avalanche and the knave a criminal. The child continued to advance into the mist. The fog presents but a soft obstacle hence its danger. It yields and yet persists. Mist, like snow, is full of treachery. The child, strange wrestler at war with all these risks, had succeeded in reaching the bottom of the descent, and had gained Chessel. Without knowing it, he was on an isthmus, with the ocean on each side, so that he could not lose his way in the fog, in the snow, or in the darkness, without falling into the deep waters of the gulf on the right hand, or into the raging billows of the high sea on the left. He was traveling on in ignorance between these two abysses. The isthmus of Portland was at this period singularly sharp and rugged. Nothing remains at this state of its past configuration. Since the idea of manufacturing Portland stone into Roman cement was first seized, the whole rock had been subjected to an alteration which has completely changed its original appearance. Calcareous lias, slate, and trap are still to be found there, rising from layers of conglomerate, like teeth from a gum. But the pickaxe has broken up and leveled those bristling, rugged peaks, which were once the fearful perches of the ossifrage. The summits exist no longer where the labes and the skuagulls used to flock together, soaring, like the envious, to solely high places. In vain might you see the tall monolith called Godolphin, an old British word signifying white eagle. In summer you may still gather on those surfaces, pierced and perforated like a sponge, rosemary, pennyroyal, wild hyssop, and sea fennel, which when infused makes a good cordial, and that herb full of knots, which grows in the sand and from which they make matting. But you no longer find gray amber, or black tin, or that triple species of slate, one sort green, one blue, and the third the color of sage leaves. The foxes, the badgers, the otters, and the martens have taken themselves off on the cliffs of Portland, as well as at the extremity of Cornwall, where there were at one time chamois, none remain. They still fish in some inlets for plaice and pilchards, but the sacred salmon no longer ascend the way, between Michaelmas and Christmas, to spawn. No more are seen there, as during the reign of Elizabeth, those old unknown birds as large as hawks, who could cut an apple in two, but ate only the pips. You never meet those crows with yellow beaks, called Cornish clothes in England, pyrocorax in Latin, 
who in their mischief would drop burning twigs on the thatched roofs, nor that magic bird, the fulmar, a wanderer from the Scottish archipelago, dropping from his bill an oil which the islanders used to burn in their lamps. Nor do you ever find in the evening, in the plash of the ebbing tide, that ancient legendary natis, with the feet of a hog and the bleat of a calf. The tide no longer throws up the whiskered seal, with its curled ears and sharp jaws, dragging itself along on its nailless paws. On that Portland, nowadays so changed as scarcely to be recognized, the absence of forests precluded nightingales, but now the falcon, the swan, and the wild goose have fled. The sheep of Portland nowadays are fat and have a fine wool. The few scattered ewes which nibbled the salt grass there two centuries ago were small and tough and coarse in the fleece, as became Celtic flocks brought there by garlic-eating shepherds, who lived to a hundred, and who, at the distance of half a mile, could pierce a cuirass with their yard-long arrows. Uncultivated land makes coarse wool. The chessel of today resembles in no particular the chessel of the past. So much has it been disturbed by man, and by those furious winds which gnaw the very stones. At present this tongue of land bears a railway, terminating in a pretty square of houses, called Chesselton, and there is a Portland station. Railway carriages roll where seals used to crawl. The isthmus of Portland two hundred years ago was a back of sand, with a vertebral spine of rock. The child's danger changed its form. What he had had to fear in the descent was falling to the bottom of the precipice. In the isthmus it was falling into the holes. After dealing with the precipice, he must deal with the pitfalls. Everything on the seashore is a trap. The rock is slippery, the strand is quicksand. Resting places are but snares. It is walking on ice which may suddenly crack and yawn with a fissure through which you disappear. The ocean has false stages below, like a well-arranged theater. The long backbone of granite, from which fall away both slopes of the isthmus, is awkward of access. It is difficult to find there what in scene-shifter's language are termed practicals. Man has no hospitality to hope for from the ocean, from the rock no more than from the wave. The sea is provident for the bird and the fish alone. Isthmuses are especially naked and rugged. The wave which wears and mines them on either side reduces them to the simplest form. Everywhere there were sharp relief ridges, cuttings, frightful fragments of torn stone, yawning with many points, like the jaws of a shark, breaknecks of wet moss, rapid slopes of rock ending in the sea. Whosoever undertakes to pass over an isthmus meets at every step misshapen blocks, as large as houses, in the forms of shin-bones, shoulder-blades, and thigh-bones, the hideous anatomy of dismembered rocks. It is not without reason that these striae of the seashore are called coats. The wayfarer must get out as he best can from the confusion of these ruins. It is like journeying over the bones of an enormous skeleton. Put a child to this labor of Hercules. Broad daylight might have aided him. It was night. A guide was necessary. He was all alone. All the vigor of manhood would not have been too much. He had but the feeble strength of a child. In default of a guide, a footpath might have aided him. There was none. By instinct he avoided the sharp ridge of the rocks, and kept to the strand as much as possible. It was there that he met with the pitfalls. 
they were multiplied before him under three forms, the pitfall of water, the pitfall of snow, and the pitfall of sand. This last is the most dangerous of all, because the most illusory. To know the peril we face is alarming. To be ignorant of it is terrible. The child was fighting against unknown dangers. He was groping his way through something which might perhaps be the grave. He did not hesitate. He went round the rocks, avoided the crevices, guessed at the pitfalls, obeyed the twistings and turnings caused by such obstacles, yet he went on. Though unable to advance in a straight line, he walked with a firm step. When necessary, he drew back with energy. He knew how to tear himself in time from the horrid bird-lime of the quicksands. He shook the snow from about him. He entered the water more than once up to the knees. Directly that he left it. His wet knees were frozen by the intense cold of the night. He walked rapidly in his stiffened garments. Yet he took care to keep his sailor's coat dry and warm on his chest. He was still tormented by hunger. The chances of the abyss are illimitable. Everything is possible in it, even salvation. The issue may be found, though it be invisible. How the child, wrapped in a smothering, winding sheet of snow, lost on a narrow elevation between two jaws of an abyss, managed to cross the isthmus, is what he could not himself have explained. He had slipped, climbed, rolled, searched, walked, persevered, that is all. Such is the secret of all triumphs. At the end of somewhat less than half an hour he felt that the ground was rising. He had reached the other shore. Leaving Chessel, he had gained terra firma. The bridge which now unites Sanford Castle with Smallmouth Sands did not then exist. It is probable that in his intelligent groping he had reascended as far as Wyke Regis, where there was then a tongue of sand, a natural road crossing East Fleet. He was saved from the isthmus, but he found himself again face to face with the tempest, with the cold, with the night. Before him once more lay the plain, shapeless in the density of impenetrable shadow. He examined the ground, seeking a footpath. Suddenly he bent down. He had discovered in the snow something which seemed to him a track. It was indeed a track, the print of a foot. The print was cut out clearly in the whiteness of the snow, which rendered it distinctly visible. He examined it. It was a naked foot, too small for that of a man, too large for that of a child. It was probably the foot of a woman. Beyond that mark was another, then another, then another. The footprints followed each other at the distance of a step, and struck across the plain to the right. They were still fresh, and slightly covered with a little snow. A woman had just passed that way. This woman was walking in the direction in which the child had seen the smoke. With his eyes fixed on the footprints, he set himself to follow them. End of section 29